This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Today marks the 225th episode of Grace Enough. And I must say, this conversation ranks among my favorites. I sit down with Natalie Runyon of Raised to Stay. We discuss Natalie's disappointment and hurt from the church and its people, and how she dug in and witnessed Jesus' presence in the middle of her wrestling. Natalie boldly speaks about the difference between church abuse and church hurt, about how some of us need to experience some quote-unquote pit living, and how staying is abiding in Christ, not loyalty to a group of people in a church building. This conversation is both thought-provoking and insightful. After listening, if you want to listen to similar episodes, visit graceenoughpodcast.com and click the question, Been Spiritually Wounded? That will take you to other Grace Enough episodes and resources addressing this topic. As I mentioned last week, I have revamped the website, including six easy-to-listen-to categories that you have most requested. So if you're curious about which episodes to listen to next, hop over to graceenoughpodcast.com and check out those categories. Good morning, Natalie, and welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I have to tell all of our guests that you're moving back to Kentucky because most of my listeners know that's my place. <laughs> we're so excited. Like we're ready. We're ready for green grass. We're ready for skyline chili. I don't know if you guys had skyline in Kentucky. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go back to some Midwest <laughs> s- Southern food. I'm ready to go. Well, it's funny because I grew up in Eastern Kentucky and I am not all about spaghetti and my chili. I know, I'm sorry, (laughs) but my husband who grew up in Florida, when he first came to school in Kentucky, he was like, Skyline Chili, this is the best thing ever. It it really is. And you can put it on hot dogs. You can, you can make, you can make casseroles. It's really, uh, it's a one hit wonder, really. (laughs) (laughs) For all the people listening that are like, what in the heck are you talking about? (laughs) It's like this morning I was listening to something and they're talking about fried bologna and how somebody had never, they were from the South and they had never heard of fried bologna. And I'm like, wait, what? You're from from the the South. South. You're not from the (laughs) South. That's right. What part of the South? Like, I know where, yeah. (laughs) Everybody knows about fried bologna. If you're yes, we South. do. That's right. So anyways, as we get going this morning, I'd love to hear um, a little. And so much of what we're talking about with your story is really your faith in Christ and how that has been influenced by the church throughout your life. So start by telling our listeners, how did you first come to know Christ? What is a little bit of your early faith journey? 
I grew up in the church. I don't remember ever not being in the church. My dad um, had been a drug addict and alcoholic before he found Jesus. And so when him and my mom got married and they had us, we started ministry in like soup kitchens and hospitals and nursing homes and prisons, because that's where my dad had kind of grown mm. up and over the Rhine, Cincinnati. And so we learned to just love the people. We learned just to be around people, to not really be afraid of anyone, no matter what their life was like or their current situation. We just wanted to be with people. So when we started following my dad into more of like this pastorate where he was going through pastoral licensing and everything, we were going to one church in particular. And I'll never forget, I was seven years old in children's church. I remember the children's church pastor telling us about Jesus. And then we went home that night and my mom Mm. knelt with me next to my bed. And I remember it like it was yesterday, kneeling down in my little white poster bed and accepting Jesus into my heart, not knowing what that language even meant. Um, Just knowing that I wanted whatever it was that that pastor was talking to us about. That's what I wanted. And so that's been my whole life has been pursuing a Jesus that, that I was introduced to, which was a Jesus who loved me and Mm. had good plans for me. And that's been my last, gosh, I'm 43. So we'll do the math, but it's been over 30 years of saying yes to Jesus and just day by day, you know, um, choosing him. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's important for listeners to know that that journey for you has not been a steady upward into the right journey, but like all of us, sometimes it feels like we're running in circles, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's like, you know, they say that healing isn't linear. I would say following Jesus isn't linear. You know, mm-hmm. it's truly is all those valleys and mountains that we sing about, we talk about, we read about of one day waking up and feeling like I've got this thing figured out and the next day waking up and not really knowing who I am or who Jesus is and what my role in ministry is and feeling really discouraged. So it's, yeah, it's a both and. Yeah. Well, and then in your debut book, Raised to Stay, it is named after the Instagram account that you have. And for those who aren't listening, if you don't follow Natalie on social media, do. It's a, it's a place of encouragement. It's a place of challenge. It's a place of actually reading what she writes and then saying, oh, wow, that's really causing me to dig a little bit deeper and think. When you started writing, really pouring your heart out on Instagram, like what was your intention with that originally? Like, why did you just say, okay, I'm going to start doing this? It was in a season. I was 40 years old and I was under probably one of the most toxic leaders I have ever been in, in a church. And that's saying a lot, considering that I have been doing this for 43 years. It was one of the most challenging seasons. My family had just moved, you know, thousands of miles away to be on a church staff. I thought it was going to be the place I would die in. I was excited about being there, but I was under someone who was just extremely unhealthy, not the whole church, just one leader. And I found myself on a walk one day asking the Lord if I could quit. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like 40 years feels like a good spiritual number to tap out of what I'm doing. I have a degree in kinesiology. I've been a gym teacher. Like, just let me go back to doing like normal work with people who don't know you, who are supposed to disappoint me and hurt me. Um, But I'm tired of the church being the one to disappoint and hurt me. And it was on that walk. And if you've ever had kind of like this Holy Ghost, uh, Saul to Paul encounter with the Lord, it was like he gave me this phrase in my mind, raised to stay. And Mm -hmm. I knew that I must still be connected to the vine, that John 15 abiding in Christ for him to trust me with something that felt so special. And I ran home, Googled it. There was nothing. There was nothing called raised to stay. And 
I thought, you know what, if I want to quit, I bet you there's a lot of people who want to quit because I'm watching my peers walk away. It was mm -hmm. kind of at the height of deconstruction starting. Yeah. And I wrote on Instagram, my personal account, I didn't even have a raise this day account yet, but I wrote on black background with white writing, just something that I was feeling. And I put it out there and I hashtagged it raised to stay. And before I knew it, all these people were messaging me like, oh, I feel that way too. So every day I just wrote a black box with white writing on my Instagram account. One thing that I needed to say to myself to keep me from quitting. Mm. And before I knew it, we were a family. <laughs> wow. I mean, I love hearing that backstory <laughs> because, because I haven't been following along for obviously since the beginning, it's good to hear that that's just kind of how it started. And then it does speak so much to how much that message resonates. Like I right now have plenty of people who come to my mind who think, I just want to quit. I just want to quit. And, um, you know, quitting the church, that's a complicated topic that you write all about. And so I'm going to read something that you wrote. You said, part of my journey was finding that I did really love God and the church, even though I carried scars and wounds that were still actively healing. And so you know that a lot of listeners resonate with that. Maybe share um, as much as you can a few of those church hurt experiences that kind of launched you into this place. I can trace it back to being a kid and, and watching my family just give and give and give. You know, we lived in a church parsonage. We um, mm -hmm. didn't collect a six-figure paycheck. My dad was bivocational. My mom was bivocational. We, we went to public school. We we didn't have like fancy vacations and, and big houses. I mean, we rented houses my entire life. And so I saw my parents sacrifice and sacrifice and give and give and honestly didn't really see an organization trying to protect or, or help mm. in any way, shape or form. And when I was a senior in high school, you know, we were living in the parsonage of this church. They were our family. We had been there for many years. And one Sunday we just showed up and just like any Sunday, there was no, no difference. We show up, go in and we're told by the board, this is your last Sunday. No Shh. reason why. And we had to pack up our home and we had to drive to this horse farm where we had some friends who had an apartment over a horse barn. And they said, you can live here. And it was an hour from my high school. I'm a senior in high school. I'm a cheerleader. I'm involved. And I remember driving away from the church and feeling like David running from Saul. Like mm -hmm. if this is your church, if this is what your church is, then I don't want anything to do with it. I was supposed to go to a Christian college and I had already been in the process of going and getting through the acceptance process. And I canceled my application and ended up going to a public university because I just didn't want any more disappointment from the mm -hmm. people who were supposed to protect me. And that was probably the first time I felt that betrayal. Later, as I go into adult ministry, then it becomes more personal. Now it's not my parents getting hurt and I'm a byproduct of that hurt. Now it's happening directly to me. And I'm realizing there are wounds that haven't healed from my childhood, mm -hmm. from that experience when I was in high school. And I am self, you know, I'm self-preserving and I'm trying to protect myself because I don't want that to happen to me. And so you become suspicious. Every leader is going to hurt me. Everybody's going to do this to me. The collective church is just bad. We start going in that direction because the enemy loves to reopen wounds. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been my last maybe 23 years of adult ministry is really having to understand I love God. I love yeah. his people, but I do have 
open wounds still, like many of us do. We have Mm -hmm. these open wounds that um, we're trying to heal through the power of the Holy Spirit, through community, but we have to acknowledge when they still sting. Um, And I think that's what I'm trying to learn now is, okay, God, if I love your people, I'm probably going to get hurt and Mm -hmm. I don't want to be self-preserving. That's not a fruit of the spirit. I don't want to be afraid. Mm. Um, but there is wisdom and, and there is honest conversation. And I think we need to be having more of these conversations. Yeah. Well, and so when you think about that, particularly as I think about just the family of God, right? Like we're taught so much that once you become a child of God, or we're all children of God, but once you accept Christ, like we become this family of God. And there is this mindset that a family takes care of each other. And like you said, protects their security and there's belonging. Yet, I, if we think about the family ourselves, there are people in our own family that we're just like, well, I'd rather not sit at the table with you. <laughs> you really do annoy me or you hurt me. But it is so different because we have these different expectations of the family of God. And so how do you feel like you sorted that out and continue to sort that out and actually stay? You know, I always tell people it's like sitting at the table and you have like that one sibling who just likes to pinch under the table and they do it without the the parents (laughs) seeing, you know, and everybody thinks that kid is just so great, but they're the one that's actually, you know, instigating a lot of the problems. And I, I see that in the family of God, especially in church staff, especially in, you know, like I said, I had a toxic leader over me that people didn't even know was toxic, despite the wake of employees who were leaving um, under Mm. her leadership they couldn't see it. She was pinching under the table, but nobody knew it was happening until there ended up being this like mass outcry, you know? Yeah. And so I think that we as believers have to have that, you know, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove mentality. When mm. we go into a church staff, I joke as a pastor's kid that I have this gift to be able to walk into a room and tell you who the toxic person is at the table. I say, I didn't choose the thug life. The thug life chose me. <laughs> I don't like I don't like having that gift because it can make Mm. me suspicious when I'm not healthy, but when I'm healthy and I'm discerning, I'm glad I have that gift. Yes. So for those of us who choose to be not only on a staff, but let's just say a high level volunteer as a congregant, we have to go in with that discernment to say, okay, if I sense something, am I operating out of an unhealed wound and I'm being suspicious or am I operating out of wisdom and discernment and I don't feel comfortable with this person? And so then we have a choice. Do we stay and do we contend for healthy culture? Do we stay and and Mm. work? And as God gives us and equips us to do that, or is he saying, you know what? This isn't your battle to fight. It's okay to go to a different church or a different ministry or a different team and serve in a different capacity. So I I just want to say there's freedom in the Lord. <laughs> so yes. for people who are like holding on and like, no, I've got to stay to prove my loyalty. We don't get longevity awards in heaven. Mm. Like we're not going to get a trophy for being at a church for 25 years um, just Amen. to prove our loyalty, right? Right, right. You know, but if God's calling us to stay and to contend, yeah. then he'll equip us to do that. Yeah. I mean, and that is a really good point because I can tend to lean towards that place of I'll just stay forever because, you know, there has to be this really solid reason for me to leave. And I mean, if we all just pick up and leave every time something gets hard, 
that's unhealthy too. And so, so much of it is really spending the time in prayer, right? And in communion with God and listening to what you really feel like he's calling you to do. And then would you say going to trusted people as well? Or I was going to say, I mean, do you feel like you did that at times or were you just kind of like, this is a decision I got to make with just my family? How did that look? You know, I think it depends on the culture. Uh, Some of the people in the raised estate community will say, well, the church is owned by an entire family. Like you can't break that up. And you're right. Nepotism and what I call a um, religious incest within the church culture where there is just brother, (laughs) sister, aunt, uncle, like all that. There is a point where like, you can't fight that. You can't Mm -hmm. work against that. And so having counselors, mentors, disciplers, people who are in your life who maybe aren't in your church, but know know you and know your heart to be able to call them up and be like, I think I'm discerning this. Can you help me unpack what I'm, what I'm Mm -hmm. feeling? Here's the thing though. What we're finding is that church staff will go to one another and say, are you sensing this? Are you, are you feeling this? It's a, it's a borderline of gossip because what ends up happening then is we're bashing leaders. We're talking about people. And if leadership gets a hold of that, now you're not fighting for change in a good way. Now you're divisive. Now you're a Mm. gossip. So there's a way to go about asking those questions without turning it into a bash session of all, Mm. you know, this leader's bad or whatever. And I think that's what church staff struggles with is I'm sensing this. I don't know how to talk about it. So I'm not going to talk about it. And then we get stuck and then we do end up in a hurtful situation because we should have left a year ago, but we're still holding on. Mm. Um, And that's why I, I know church, a lot of churches I grew up in did not like counseling, did not like medication, Um, but I think in this day and age now, more than ever, having a counselor or a spiritual director while you're in high level ministry is vital. Yeah, absolutely. For health. I mean, we all need someone, a trusted person that we can talk to that is not intimately involved in our situation. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, so tell me this while we're talking about it, because you do in the book talk a lot about the difference between church hurt and church abuse. And I think in the cultural moment that we're living in, it's really, really important to understand the difference and really how they are approached differently. So how would you explain that? Well, I always preface this conversation with I'm not a psychologically like licensed counselor. I don't have a degree in this, but you know, I do have 43 years of being in church culture. Mm-hmm. And I will say I have been doing a lot of research on this because first of all, we never want to tell someone who is saying that they have been abused that they're not being abused. And I think 
that's really huge for all of us in the church communities to understand is that when somebody comes to us and says, I've been abused by the church, by a leader, that's not the time for us to defend the church or the leader. That's a time mm -hmm. for us to lean in and start asking questions because yeah. the chance of them actually being abused, especially spiritually, is very high um, in this culture because we do have a culture right now of um, narcissistic leaders getting by. They're pinching under the table and they're going undetected. So when somebody says they've been abused by the church, what we're hearing from them is that they've been spiritually, physically, emotionally, sexually, harmed by someone mm. in the church. This could be rape. This could be um, inappropriate touching. This could be inappropriate text messages. This could also be narcissistic leadership that is holding people hostage in offices, uh, telling them that they're not worth anything, like an abusive husband who may not be physically hitting you, yeah. but is withholding your finances or not letting you go see your friends. I mean, this could be such a wide scale of mm. abuse. And this could also be defined by our childhood. How were we treated by our fathers? How were we treated by yeah. our mothers? That we've carried some of that trauma into our church communities. And now what would be hurt to one person is abuse to another. So mm. I will never look at somebody who tells me they've been abused by the church and say, you haven't been abused. That wasn't abuse. No, I will never do that. I will ask questions. And if we need to involve a professional counselor, we will. Or if we need to get the cops involved, we will. Because yeah. unfortunately, that's the world that we live in. Church hurt is defined by the coalition of biblical counseling as any time that someone uses the scriptures or, mm. or spiritual components to degrade you to a place where you question your value, your calling, your mm. own mind. And that can turn into abuse very quickly if you stay under that for too long. And mm. that's why I say church hurt could be something as simple as somebody didn't look at me right in the parking lot or I wasn't scheduled to sing that song that I always want to sing, um, <laughs> that can, that can feel like church hurt, right. but it can also be like a toxic leader who's using scriptures to make you feel bad. I probably had more spiritual abuse. I've never had physical abuse happen to me in the church, praise the Lord, um, right. or sexual, but I've had more of that spiritual abuse where that narcissistic leader is crushing my spirit crushing my soul, trying to diminish my calling out of their own insecurity. So I've had a Saul. Yeah. Right. And a control. Like I need control. to control all of the elements. And if I'm not in control, then I'm not being the leader that I am. Absolutely. And and we see this when an older generation comes into competition with a younger generation and there mm. is this narcissistic control that takes over because we're living in insecurity and we're like Saul jealous of David. And so it, it can yeah. be a slippery slope for this bad leader to become an abusive leader. And that's why I think it's really important that as a church, we're not becoming defensive. When someone says, I've been abused by the church, don't try to defend it. Just say, okay, tell me your story. Let's go to coffee. I mm. want to hear what happened. If you're, are you comfortable? Do you trust me with this? Like, um, if you don't, I would love to refer you to someone that I trust that I'd love for you to talk to. I think we just can't shut down the conversation because we don't want to know our faults. You yeah. Know? Ooh. Yes. I so, so appreciate that because, you know, we don't know everyone's experience, right? Whether they are explaining it fully and truthfully or not, like we don't know. And like you said, the chances are they're not making it up. You know, exactly. 
And we don't know where on the scale, quote unquote, that falls, but that's not really our decision to make either. No. And, you know, just like we wouldn't qualify someone's sin, like we're not standing at the cross, like saying, well, that was a level five sin and that was a level two sin. Mm. Like Jesus doesn't do that to us. Jesus has come to me all who are weary and heavy, you know, heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. Mm -hmm. And he says that he will cast our sins as far as the East is from the West. And so who are we to stand in front of the cross and play Jesus? It's the same with this abuse thing. I'm not here to say, well, that was a level one abuse or that wasn't really Mm. abuse that was hurt. That's not our job as the family of God. It's to rally around each other, sit with each other in this tension and to listen and to lean in and to find out, oh, well, I can actually help with that or I can't help with that, but I know yeah. somebody who can. So I just, I do think we just have to be better at, at not being so quick to qualify people's experiences. Mm, I agree. Well, something else that you talk a lot about that I really appreciate is when you were in college and people kind of were maybe questioning if you were doing ministry or not. And I mean, like many of us, it was a time of exploration and trying to figure out what you believe. But you go into that chapter talking about how ministry is all around us. And I think as church people, we can forget that just because we're not volunteering in children's ministry or helping people park their cars or singing in the choir doesn't mean we aren't doing ministry. And so flesh that out a little bit, like your own experience and why it's so important to remember that ministry truly is in your neighborhood, in your home, at the soccer game, you know, whatever you're involved in. Yeah. I I wrote a black box that said, some of us are asking for the nations, but we don't even know the name of our neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we (laughs) want this like big grand ministry experience. And I think growing up in the church in the nineties and the early two thousands, there was such an emphasis on being in church ministry. I wanted to be a youth pastor. And then when everything kind of fell through for us, I end up in this public university with a Jewish roommate with boys living on my floor. Everything I knew was completely challenged. I didn't have a lot of non Christian friends outside of the church community. And so here I am in this public university and I'm having to pick a major that I don't even know what I want to do if I'm not in ministry. So I I kind of went five years, you know, because I was trying to explore (laughs) it out. But what I learned is that as I, even a science major, being a kinesiology major, having this physical education degree, personal training, fitness, everywhere I went, there was a God component to what I did. Mm. If I was teaching people that they were beautiful just the way they were made. If I was sitting in a science class and debating Darwinism and creationism, there was always an opportunity for me to not just defend my faith, but understand why I believed what I believed. And for a lot of church kids, we aren't challenged enough to really fight for our faith. We um, have been surrounded by people who believe what we believe and just Mm -hmm. tell us what we want to hear. And I think it's challenging for people to be challenged. If you haven't been challenged. And now all of a sudden you have deconstructionist or people who have been abused challenging that church culture. It's hard for us to really know how to defend anything without being good listeners. And so when I was in the world, I was a gym teacher for 10 years and I was out there doing sales. I mean, I did sales for a long time. I was kind of like the Dora of the Explorer of ministry. (laughs) Like I wanted to be a little bit of everything. I even tried to be in Hollywood, you know, but everywhere I went, God was with me. I couldn't, I could not deny that I had been with Jesus. People knew I was a Christian. People knew I was different. And so that 
made me feel special as hard as that was to have to debate Darwinism as much as it was hard to sit in Hollywood and, you know, have people come at me about my faith. It made me better because it taught me that wherever I go, ministry follows me. And when we put ourselves in boxes and say, oh, I'm, I have to be a youth pastor or worship pastor or a kids ministry leader to be in ministry. We're really limiting the Holy spirit and actually not doing the great commission, which is to go out to all the earth Mm. to the very ends of the earth and to go and make disciples. And some of the greatest pastors that I know are principals and doctors and teachers and, um, business people who bring Jesus into spaces where Mm -hmm. he wouldn't be otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I think about my husband who is a leader in his workplace and his job is, is very hard, but I mean, he loves Jesus and he cares for his staff very well. Um, but it's an act of humility and it's, it is definitely taking the great commission to the world because he works in the world. And, um, I also think about how easy it is for us to, compartmentalize, right? Our lives like, well, this is our Christian world, or this is our quiet time. And this is our workspace. And then we work out over here. And this is our kids school. When God is calling us to an integrated type of living. Like if you talk about your gratitude to Jesus in front of your Christian friends, like I'm so thankful God did this, then that should be the same words that come out of our mouth when we're talking to our neighbor and they ask us the same question. Like, yeah, God bless me with this. And I think even just practicing that opens your eyes to the fact that God is with us and at work everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think part of our disappointment or our disillusionment with the church is that we put all of our eggs in one basket and we say all of my identity, all of my worth, all of my purpose, Mm. all of my friendships is in this one church. So then when we are hurt and we feel Mm. like God's calling us to go, then we lose everything because we've been investing all of our time, talent, and treasure into Mm. this one organization when God has not asked us, we're not part of gangs. Like we, we can go and be free, but yet we've been taught that loyalty is some sort of like spiritual gift. Mm. And it's not like we are loyal to one that is to Jesus and whatever he tells us to do, we do. And so if people don't understand it, they don't understand it. But I think a lot of us have put ourselves in a situation where our entire identity is built around the ministry that we're doing, which Mm. is why when it gets taken from us, we feel like we're having a midlife crisis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. And then that loyalty, I think we can um, mix that up with, yes, we're a part of the body of the Christ, but we're not talking about the little C church, right? We're talking about big C church, which is every believer in every place in every time forever. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and loyalty to people is dangerous because the yeah. minute that we, the minute that we become loyal to a person, then we, we will get hurt because that's just what's going to happen because yeah. that people will fail us. So I do see a lot of people, you know, be in a church for 30 years, loyal to this one pastor to the point where if the pastor is abusing or is harming people, they, they won't, they won't see it. And so that's why it's really important that we don't overstay our welcome, which is why the word stay and raise the stay actually doesn't mean staying in a church. It's John 15. If raised to abide looked good on a t-shirt, I would (laughs) call this raised to abide because I'm not telling us to stay in harmful churches. I'm telling us to abide in Christ, to stay connected Mm. to the vine where we can produce good fruit. And sometimes producing good fruit means uprooting and going to better soil. (laughs) Ah, 
Oh, freedom. <laughs> so much freedom. Freedom. <laughs> well, there's a chapter that you write called Pits and Palaces that is just absolutely chock full of uh, just, it's awesome. Um, if you recall that, because I know you're writing like crazy, give us a little bit of an overview of that. Like what a, a taste for the listener of what they will get if they read the book in general, but particularly that pits and palaces chapter. Well, in the chapter before I talk about Paul, who's teaching us to like get back in the boat, to stop, you know, we, we're going to ask the Lord to take the thorn from our flesh, but that the risks are always worth the reward that's coming. And then I transition into Joseph and I'm talking about how mm. if Paul is our big brother, who's telling us to get back in the boat, Joseph is our little brother who flaunted <laughs> what his daddy gave us a little bit too much and caused <laughs> a little ruckus in the family. And, you know, I think a lot of us are the Josephs. There are a lot of us in the kingdom of God are the ones we're dreaming dreams. We've got the promise of the Lord. And we run into churches declaring like, this is what God's told me. This is what we're going to do. And we've got these jealous brothers and sisters who just are not ready to hear what God has told us. And so we have the overzealous ones. We have the jealous ones. And what happens is, is we encounter pit pushers, like people who do <laughs> not want us walking out our calling people who are jealous of the favor that we have, and they push us into a pit. And that's where we typically quit because we find ourselves mm. in the bottom of a pit and we never expected to be there. We were taught on social media that ministry is going to be a red carpet to record deals, book deals. Um, we didn't expect the pit. We thought we were going to get the palace. And yeah. that entire chapter is about how to honor the pit because it teaches us how to hear from the Lord, to mm. sit in dark spaces and to really just wrestle with why we're there, how we ended up there and what we're going to find when we get to the palace, because there will still be temptations in the good places. There will still be challenges where Ooh. we thought we had found favor and how we respond to the pit is often going to teach us how we're going to behave in the palace. And the palace is not for entitlement. The palace is not to flaunt what we have, but to take that favor that we've been given and do good for the kingdom. And some of us just need a good pit season before the Lord's going to put us in a palace. <laughs> so. oh, girl, we, we need to quit. That's a yeah. sermon. Hey, <laughs> all done. <laughs> I just, I'm telling you, when I uh, got to the church that I'm at here in Colorado Springs, I was hired for worship and I was excited. I thought, oh my gosh, the favor of the Lord is upon me. I am at this like church where everybody knows about the worship. I'm finally going to live my best life. All these, you know, 20 years of doing small Bible studies and everything, it's suddenly making sense. And I get here and the first thing that happens to me is I'm pushed into a pit and I'm like, whoa. This was supposed to be the palace, right? <laughs> and I'm I'm sitting in an office and I'm alone. I'm devastated. I'm exhausted. I'm emotionally drained. And I'm asking the Lord, why would you send me out here only to push me down? Like, I feel like you bait and switched me. This is not what I signed up for. And it was in that season journaling every day, asking to quit, asking for this pit season just to be the end of me, that the Lord began to give me vision for where I'd be going. And it wouldn't have been happening had he not brought me out here for me to have a pit season. Mm. Um, it's not my finest hour. There were a lot of spiritual temper tantrums. I was not best behaved. <laughs> I certainly kicked and screamed my way through it. Um, but now I see what he was asking me to do and what he's asking to trust me with. And uh. I couldn't do it without the pit. What I hear you saying, or well, I hear you saying a lot of things, but something that really stands out to me too is just you talking about journaling. And sometimes we don't have someone right in our midst that is a really trustworthy person. 
journaling is one of those things. I mean, it's like almost free counseling, right? Like you're, you're pouring your heart out to God. So that's the first thing that I hear. And then pour your heart out to the Lord. Like Joseph is such a great example. He found himself in more than one pit. Absolutely. <laughs> it wasn't like he was like, uh, I'm a one and done you know, I fell in the pit and now everything's hunky dory. No, it was decades of pit living for him. And he kept clinging to the Lord. And so I see that in your story. And now I'm just prayerful for you, Natalie, that there are no more pits. <laughs> Listen, I've, I've learned that that's not true. I know. I, I, I too have prayed <laughs> that, like, that the Lord, please was, God be done. <laughs> let this cup pass for me. I, and I, and I think for a lot of us, like we forget that the journaling part too, is for us to go back five years from now and yes. see the faithfulness of God. I have those journals. I should have mm -hmm. burned them because they're like really just a lot of bad stuff in one space. But I was going through them the other night because I couldn't sleep. And I just was in awe of the faithfulness of God yeah. that five years ago where I was five, six years ago and where I am now is such a testament of like how faithful God is to finish what he starts in us. Mm. And had I quit raised to stay wouldn't exist. And Gosh. that's what I just think about how important when people say, why do you care if I quit? Like, I just want to be done. And I'm like, well, because I have FOMO, I have enough fear of missing out <laughs> that I want to know what God's going to do in you. So yeah, like I kind of do want to know. So you know, please yes. don't quit so we can figure out why he's asking you to be in this pit. That's right. Well, and I mean, sometimes it's like redirecting people to take a rest. Resting in the Lord is one thing. Quitting is another. And the temptation right. to quit, man, is so strong. Sometimes I, whew, girl, I know. But before I resigned, you know, I resigned from my position in January to focus fully on raise to stay. But every Sunday I would go to the same Starbucks before church and I would drive through that Starbucks and be like, Lord, just let me be a Starbucks barista. Like, <laughs> look how nice their life is. Like they get up at five, they're done by noon. They can go to the pool. Their phone's not ringing off the hook. Like why, why can't I have that life? You yeah. know, not that being a barista is like super easy, but I just meant like away from the, the crazy of ministry, you know? Yes. Oh yeah. Um, and I think it's okay to have those thoughts and that God's like, that's cute. Let's keep moving. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Because <laughs> my husband will often say, you should start cleaning houses for a living because I love to clean. <laughs> and I've said to him, yeah, well, that's all fine and dandy until I start doing it. And then that has problems too. Exactly. So I, I'm too much of a cynic to believe that any place is going to be problem free. Totally. <laughs> so, well, let's close with this. You write, um, I've been comforted in remembering my yes to Jesus as a child, and the reminder that I can come to him now with that same innocence, and he will hold on to me tightly in my temper tantrums, screaming fits, and silent treatments. In my weakest moments, red-faced and my heart clanging in my chest, he is constant and true like a good father. So for those of the people who are listening, and they're barely hanging on, and their life right now is a lot of temper tantrums and a lot of silent treatments. They're heartbroken by the family of God. How would you encourage them in light of your ministry raised to stay? Well, first of all, God is not in a hurry to our healing. Mm. Amen. He will do the work. And yes, there is work that we need to do as well, but there might be a season of rest. And 
as we said earlier, resting is not quitting. You Mm -hmm. know, we need to be able to take a nap and trust that our God appointed assignment is waiting for us when we wake up and not be afraid that if we rest, we're going to miss out on something. Um, just like the prodigal's father wasn't rushing the prodigal home. He was anxious to see him. We Mm. can't rush each other into healing. We need to be able to take each other to coffee or to lunch or to sit in a living room in silence and, and wrestle together with the season and to not be afraid of pain, to not be afraid of darkness because there is growth happening there. It's just not as productive as we would like it to be. And so just to be patient with yourself and as the family of God, we should be patient with each other and not mm. forsake these conversations that are going to draw us closer to Jesus. I always say that Christians, we don't want to bear each other's burdens, but we we know how to pick up an offense. And I think if we could be better at bearing one another's burdens and sitting in the pits together, rather than just rushing everybody to just be the victim and, and to lick our wounds, but to push yeah. each other to the healer that that's where we're going to find the true family of God, the people who will lower us through a roof, the people who will sit with us in our tomb and and pray for a resurrection. That is, that's who I see the church becoming as we have these hard and holy conversations. Mm. Goodness, Natalie, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for just being someone who on the internet with all the crazy (laughs) that points us towards truth and not always, it's not fluffy, you know? And so, um, I just appreciate you so much. Oh gosh. Thank you for having me and trusting you with your people. I'm just, I'm honored to be part of this. I am grateful for Natalie's voice and her writing. If you purchase Raised to Stay through the link in the show notes, I receive a small payout at no cost to you. And remember to visit graceenoughpodcast.com to explore the six podcast categories I've listed. Those serve as a guide for previous episodes you may have missed or to make sharing episodes with your friends easy. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.